welcome back to the Automated Decision Making and Society podcast. In this episode, we're continuing to spotlight keynote addresses from our 2022 ADMS Symposium, Automated Societies, What Do We Need to Know? Today, we'll hear from Melissa Gregg, Senior Principal Engineer at Intel, who will discuss the ecological impact of an automated society. I would like to begin, as is thankfully customary to do, with an acknowledgement that we are on unceded Indigenous land, the land of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. I I pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and to the endurance of all Indigenous cultures on occupied land. As some of you know, I come from Luchawita, Tasmania, which is Palawa country. And I was very moved to see Mark Cleaver's artwork, the Waitini, in the booklet for this event. So you may have seen this. <laughs> um, noticing Palawa in the, uh, in the title, I searched for more information on Mark. Um, and on the RMIT website, There's a beautiful story, so I urge um, all of you to take a look at that. It's an inspiring story, and it's um, unfortunately familiar to the many queer young people like myself who felt the need to leave home in order to feel safe, finding a supportive community. Um, Luwatini is Milky Way in Palawakani. And as an expat living outside Australia, I can tell you There is nothing anywhere that gives me more of a feeling of vast connection to something more meaningful than when I look up at the night sky here, down under, and see what what white folks call the Milky Way and the Southern Cross. I actually, this is kind of spooky, but I have an image of the Milky Way hanging in my other home in Portland, Oregon, by the Townsville artist Tommy Powell who's a descendant from Eastern Torres Strait Islands. And this is reflecting some of my extended family's connections to that place. So thank you, Mark and RMIT, for sharing the stories. I am the daughter of convicts, settlers, and tricksters who moved to Tasmania, in some cases forcibly, as part of the terraforming project that was and remains colonial Britain. I grew up on cleared farmland at the southern end of Lunawana Alona, also known as Bruni Island, and therefore benefited from unjust land ownership regimes that were foundational to settlement. My father, grandfather and great-grandfather worked as sheep and cattle graziers to earn a living at a time when practices like land clearing, the mass uptake of pesticide use, and native species erasure took hold with what we now know to be catastrophic effects. On my mother's side, my great-great-grandfather jumped ship from a vessel that docked in Hobart from the Azores Islands. And like many other opportunistic types of that era, he simply changed his name and started a new life. He ran away, coincidentally, to Bruni Island, where he worked in the thriving whaling industry. And um, 
many of you probably know that this was the form of energy extraction that preceded coal to fuel households. Um, within my one extended family then, um, we've had recurring relationships to Lunawana Alona, which you're seeing here, and the Nuanoni people who lived there as part of the larger Oyster Bay clan. The very well-known survivor of that place, Truganini, was taken from Bruni Island and forced to live here in Melbourne, among other foreign places, as part of her indentured service. And when Truganini was finally returned to her people after a long process of activism, it was my sister-in-law's uncle who helped distribute her ashes in, in a place very close to where this picture is taken. So when David welcomed us to country earlier this week, he asked us to come with purpose. And by tracing this history, my purpose is to offer a model of recognising ecological debt and the many privileges and legacies that my trajectory continues. In the rest of this talk, I want to invite you to draw connections between the extraction and colonial practices that were normalised at an earlier time and the new forms of ecological harm that are involved in the economy and the colonial powers that govern our life and work today. This process that I just went through, I just shared with you, is something I learned from Leith Sharp, that to begin thinking ecologically, you must first situate yourself in a deep time perspective and trace in a very direct way where you fit in a broader planetary event. More pragmatically, uh, my secondary purpose is to give you a sense of the conversation happening in industry about the environmental challenges of what for the past week we've been calling ADM technologies, but which engineers are calling variously AI, ML, DL, simply voice, simply vision, <laughs> um, sometimes multimodal use cases, Web3, or simply HPC, which stands for High Performance Compute. But I begin with story because I believe one of the main obstacles we face in climate activism, in industry, in academia, anywhere, is how we talk to ourselves about ecology. So this is moving from the question, um, what do we need to know, which was our animating premise this week, to how do we need to be? So that story I shared, and this is me at Cloudy Bay Beach on Bruni Island, where I'm sitting on a cliff where mutton birds would come home to roost um, at dusk, this being a very traditional um, species that uh, indigenous people of, of this place were attached to and would eat, and that um, white occupants of that land have unfortunately been stealing for many years. I did not know that at the time when I was um, sitting in this idyllic place. So thinking through how to live ecological knowledge within your own life narrative is part of what I'm trying to model here. And I'm also drawing on the work of Timothy Morton, whose book, Being Ecological, has been my plain reading <laughs> on the way to this event. He says the ways we talk to ourselves about ecology, um, the main way, is just dumping data on ourselves. 
and that this process of data dumping is inhibiting, uh, quote, a more genuine way of handling ecological knowledge. There are better ways of living all this than we have now, he says, and we don't even know that we are living it right now. We're like people caught in a habitual pattern, going along repeating the same things without even realizing it. It's like we find ourselves at the sink, compulsively washing our hands over and over again, but we have no idea how we got there. So this book is a really interesting way of thinking about the difference between knowing and being, and I found it <laughs> one of the things driving what I was saying last night on the panel when I was talking about what we're going to do with what we know. Um, Morton says, information dump mode is a way for us to try to install ourselves at a fictional point in time before global warming happened. We're trying to anticipate something inside which we already find ourselves. And so this idea of anticipation, um, it's also a PTSD response, as many of you probably know. And so preparing yourself with the right information so that you can be ready is this kind of bind that I think a lot of climate activism is currently suffering from. And then I think um, the other point there that he's making about the facts <laughs> is that um, when, when, we, when we think about the mode of knowing that we've in inherited over time and over centuries now, it's this, this prompt that you would ever know exactly what to do that is also part of the problem. So that's, that's another way of um, introducing you to some of the uh, information dump that will now follow. Um, <laughs> So this is probably what you're expecting the talk to be about. <laughs> um, the, the things that we know and what the tech industry currently says about the ecological impact of what it's doing is usually coming in this sort of form. And in fact, uh, last Friday, when we were presenting our strategy to the CTO, this is exactly the kind of bullet point we included. Data centers will consume between one to 3% of total energy by 2030 with total ICT as high as 7 to 20 percent. And the citations are these papers and many, many others. And one of the things that's challenging about this kind of information is, well, what's anyone supposed to do with that? <laughs> because how, do you, how is energy being measured? What is 1 percent? We're currently at 1 percent, apparently, according to these, to these studies. And so, um, what you see in this and in many other instances in the tech industry is when people talk about climate impact, they're still using the same language of data that they use for everything else, as if it is not um, required <laughs> to think or know in a different way about the cumulative effects of patterns um, that the industry has itself created. It's also the language of projection, right? So another reason I was mentioning time and connection to time and place is that nobody's ever actually responsible for these sorts of statements because they're projections. And so will that CTO still be having a role in the industry in 2030? Like, is he actually going to be accountable <laughs> for a decision he might make about our green software strategy? Um, who, who are the authorities here that are actually measuring energy? We'll show, show a little bit more about that shortly. Um, but the, the thing that's really interesting about this is that there's always this futurist language that comes with talking about impacts and going back to Morton as if there aren't already impacts clearly visible. 
Um, so that's one of the things that's quite challenging about working in this space. And so what it creates is a set of reactions that, um, again, keep things in place. Um, both a, a response that is more radical, the more traditional mobilizing response of activism against the spread of data centers and um, knowing the impacts ecologically of hosting data centers on local energy grids um, and also water resources and water tables is, is leading to a new kind of ac activism that we've seen in the Netherlands recently. But also, you know, in the recent heat waves or the, or the continuing heat waves uh, that are currently occurring in the Northern Hemisphere, we know that crypto has an energy cost. So therefore, we'll just ask people to stop mining for a few days and that be another apparently legitimate way of coping with this knowledge, okay, instead of actually questioning um, the right to compute in this form in the first place. So that's one of the things that happens when you have this kind of language. It, it creates these effects that are themselves unimaginative, um, but are as, as best as we can think of doing <laughs> with the knowledge that we have. The other way that the industry talks about ecological impact is regulatory and, um, and, and policy related. So um, what I'm showing you here is a very simplified simplified diagram of the way that greenhouse gas protocol emissions are described in industry. So this is worth knowing, um, even though I don't want to do a data dump. <laughs> so I, I'd recommend looking up EPA's website or the greenhouse gas protocol to see more details here. But I want to show you this slide and the illustration because it is a good example of how the industry is trying to simplify and make actionable some of the complexity of what it means to reduce carbon impacts. So as you can see, like there are um, attempts to make this a linear logical process where you see the factory, you know, where things start at the factory and the emissions that the factory makes are called scope one emissions. That's everything that your company, say Intel, as a factory, how it is operated, um, the waste that it creates and what it does with that waste all falls in scope one. Scope two is the energy supply that Intel would be dependent on to run those factories um, and fab plants. And you can also see like there's this little truck that keeps rolling <laughs> through the picture, right? So scope three is what's unhelpfully collapsed as upstream and downstream sources of carbon. And so one of the things that um, I find helpful about this graph is that graphically showing you that the use of solar products are one thing that all companies are now obligated to try and calculate. Um, the, the other part on the top is the end-of-life treatment of products. So a lot of the work I've been doing recently has been on the topic of e-waste and the chain of custody and responsibility for disposing of the products um, that the PC industry sells. And this is um, one way of talking about uh, the circular economy opportunity. So, so business see it as an opportunity to um, design products for longer life and for reuse. And we'll see a couple of examples of those shortly. Um, but there is this um, attempt here in the ways that more uh, policy-minded and um, ESG, environmental, social and governance reporting, is trying to make real for people who work in these companies where they fit 
in the sense of what role they could play in lowering emissions. So a number of companies um, have taken targets to uh, what's called net zero, and I won't read through these. I'd only showed this slide as a way of showing you the genre of tech commentary that is um, within the industry where they talk about the commitments that large companies are making on climate uh, as a way of showing you that something is happening. So there's, um, there's a whole commentary um, and market research industry that is attached to um, all of these tech companies where their role is to report to all of these companies internally what other companies are doing. And so this is a report I was sent last week to summarise what I already know <laughs> that Microsoft, Amazon and Google are doing. Um, and the thing that's really interesting about this is that the fact that it is getting reported and more people are getting jobs out of making reports about it is itself seen as a sign that something's changing because we're now talking about it. But all of these commitments, um, first of all, are um, in that language of futurism that I mentioned, you know, the, the 2030 or 2040 commitment. The other thing in terms of what we just saw is that for a number of these companies, um, they are only really able to control scope three. They're only really able to control um, if they're at the software layer, a use phase of manufactured products. So one of the things that is optimistic about what's happening at the moment in these conversations is that there are new partnerships that are going to have to happen between hardware and software companies because everybody is going to be responsible <laughs> for reporting everybody's collective impact. So given what we know in some of this language, what are we doing? <laughs> and I just want to share a couple of examples um, as, as we lead into discussion of some of the ways that I have tried my best <laughs> to come up with some initiatives that act on the knowledge that is already before us. So if you read um, some of the research that's coming out of Europe, in particular on lean ICT um, and the energy use um, involved, particularly in um, computers and mobile phones, um, obviously you conclude from that kind of research that the longer you can keep your device, um, the, the better it is for the environment in the sense that you are not extracting new minerals and materials to create a new product that is needlessly being upgraded primarily because software providers tell you that it's out of date. So there's a lot of emphasis now on product reuse and that is sometimes described as circularity, so putting the product back into circulation um, because there is a, a noticeable effect um, if you do that. So one of the first things we did when I was still working in the PC business was talk to a major customer about a concept vehicle where we could literally start to dematerialize the components going into the PC, so using less stuff in the first place, like shrinking the motherboards and changing the way things are soldered and changing the source of the metals going into that system, um, but also trying to get them to think about what would it mean to actually build something for reuse, because this goes completely against the way that they have sold products for decades. So Concept Luna was the first example of this work that we did. Um, but it's a concept. It's not actually a product available to buy. The framework laptop 
is available to buy, and I encourage you to do so. It's a startup that um, released one of the first um, high-performance modular PCs last year. I met them personally at CES a few years ago before COVID. It was like an episode of Silicon Valley. I was there, and these young white guys all came and pitched me over a coffee at the Intel booth. And they were like trying to decide which chip to use, Intel or somebody else. And thankfully, I kept their card <laughs> and put them in touch with some of my colleagues, and they ended up choosing Intel. Um, but this is an example of a, I mentioned this in our panel last night when I was talking about the, um, the amount of uh, vigor and energy from some young engineers in the industry right now. These guys used to work for Oculus, um, and they've quit their jobs working for big tech to create the future they want to see. Um, so a, a fully modular laptop, which is now in its second, second release, and uh, really exciting work. We've also been partnering with nonprofits whose job um, and service to the community is um, repurposing donated laptops when large corporate um, uh, customers and uh, entities in their community um, do donation drives. So Free Geek Portland is one of the best known in the US. Um, we've asked them to come in and, and tell us what to do differently in the way that we design products, and this is what they said. This is their slide. Um, this is also you know, probably familiar to you, the conversation about the right to repair that um, is quite active here in Australia as well as the US. Um, what does it take to repair? What are the things that some companies are doing to lock devices so they can't be reused? What, what would we need to do to, to make them usable again? Um, using open source software is a really big part of the solution for these nonprofits because it, it costs very little for them to completely refurbish a PC and make it usable for somebody who's never had one. Um, so part of what I'm trying to do in this work is point out that the people that still don't have a computer at home, which is a large number of people in America, <laughs> let alone the rest of the world, this is what COVID revealed, um, we shouldn't be worried about losing market share <laughs> when we're talking about people who just haven't even had the chance to learn how to use a computer. And one of the things that is challenging now that um, cloud business models have taken hold so strongly is that even when people did get secondhand PCs in the past using a Microsoft browser, for example, or Microsoft operating system with Windows, now it's all cloud dependent. It's very hard for somebody who doesn't have the literacy or the money to have a cloud account to understand what it means to log in to your own profile just to access the hardware that's sitting in front of you. So another thing we're trying to do is work more with open source. And back to um, the chart, if you remember it, that was, that was what we're doing on reuse. This is what we're doing on use phase work. So um, we've, we've made some strategic hires to, um, to bring on to our team, the new software team, um, some of the founders of the Green Software Foundation. I know that's hard to read, sorry. But, um, please check out the website if you want to see a little bit more about the fundamentals of green software. Basically, what we've realized is that engineers and engineering education is incentivizing for the kinds of results that remove um, energy supply from the equation. So the, the optimal, optimal thing that any engineer is taught to do <laughs> in an engineering school is to optimize for performance. 
and in this case, performance tends to mean energy consumption and vast amounts of it. It also optimizes for always on. Technology is always being on and usually at full power when they are on. So what the green software movement is trying to do is think about what, how, where, and when you run a workload. Um, and then I can go into more detail if there are uh, engineers in the room here who want to learn more about that um, in practice. But the thing that's really important about this shift is it's about changing the priorities of engineering from um, having the most power all the time to being what we call carbon responsive. So carbon responsive computing is um, part of the work that we're doing, particularly in Intel Labs with my colleague Dawn Nafis. And this is starting to reflect some of those questions that I alluded to in the um, activism happening around the Netherlands. Um, some of the concerns people are having around the spread of data centers in regional US locations too. Um, because one of the things that could be said about the way that large companies are making use of this space and place and country right now is that we're seeing a new form of energy gentrification. So um, in, in Dawn's, in Dawn's uh, research, part of what they're trying to recognize is that you know, for social scientists to be involved in this work, some of the best work that we can do work that this centre is doing very well, I think, is engaged in um, the concerns of local citizens who are affected by the decisions being made in those placements and, and raising questions of democracy and what constitutes the public interest um, when some of those sweetheart deals are being done with governments. And, of course, my own employer is currently advocating very strongly for the CHIPS Act um, in the United States which is going to be another form of government subsidy for the expansion of manufacturing. Um, so we are continuing to see uh, how this works out, not just at a local level in places like Oregon or Arizona, but now um, because of the geopolitics of, of chip production, um, how this is happening on a planetary scale. But if you'd like to learn more about carbon responsive or carbon aware computing, my boss, uh, who I mentioned, who is the one that um, designed the uh, delayed um, software downloads for Windows. Um, he's on this podcast, Environmental Variables, where they're talking about how difficult this challenge is. Um, so I can share that later if people want. So how this carbon responsive um, computing future starts to take shape is um, working in partnership with new organizations. Here's one called What Time? where they're starting to give you real-time analytics of the quality of the energy or the, um, the characteristics of the energy supply in the source location. So this is how you would get to the point of being able to make an automated decision on whether to run an energy um, sourced from a dirty supply or a clean supply. So you'll see Oregon is looking very virtuous here in green <laughs> because there's a very high concentration relatively speaking, to some of those um, other states in the US of hydroelectric power. Um, and so wind and solar are also calculated into this metric. And this brings us back to Tasmania. So I wanted to um, conclude by looking at how the world appears um, in this new 
uh, language and discourse and science of green energy computing. Um, this, this is taken from an amazing Twitter account that I encourage you to take a look at too. Um, Grant Chalmers is, is, is tracking real-time um, the cumulative um, quality of energy supply in different regions. So Tasmania is at the top. I, I just love this. It makes me feel very patriotic. Um, Tasmania, Sweden, Iceland, Quebec and Ontario closely followed by Finland. So this is, um, this is actually a gift that you can see. Um, it's, it's moving back and forth depending on the time of day. Um, but these are the sorts of visualizations that are becoming the data that are then informing how companies that are in control of some of these technologies and investments right now are thinking about where they're going to expand um, because they are concerned and conscious that they will start to get measured with more regulation coming in on what they are doing to reduce that scope three emissions, which is something that they can control. So who knew that this story would end with Tasmania being the future of green computing? Um, but I did want to also finish by just leaving you some ideas about what you can do um, to make a connection to the sorts of computing that you're doing today and the emissions that that creates. So everything I just talked about from an engineering point of view is trying to fix the problem as it is today, as if nothing could change, as if the demand for energy is only going to continue to increase. Um, we need to realise that we have seen the best possible version of computing already in our lifetime where we live, and there are people who have never had access to anything like that level of energy use or performance and may never do. What we can do is to be much more conscious of the way that our own actions or inactions, leaving devices turned on, leaving files lagging around in cloud servers all over the world, are doing literal damage <laughs> to ground and country um, where those facilities are housed. And so that's a new kind of hospitality that I hope I've tried to bring to your awareness today in this talk. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the ADMS podcast. Visit our YouTube channel at admscenter.org forward slash YouTube for more session recordings from the 2022 symposium.